Hi, this is Mary. And this is Stacy. Come join us on a new show as we explore the taste of the arts. This show was recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Hi, and welcome to our first episode of Taste of the Arts. I'm Stacy, and I'm here today with my co-host, Mary. How's it going, Mary? Going great. Good to be here, Stacy. Are you super excited? I am excited. We're finally, finally get to do this, yes. Finally reveal our mystery first guest. Yes. All right, let's go ahead and introduce him. We have today with us Chef Keith from FM Don's in downtown Punta Gorda. So glad you're joining us. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to us about the arts and how it relates to all things yummy and food. Absolutely. There's <laughs> definitely a correlation between food and art. There is definitely an art to it. I wanted to ask about, this is always intriguing to me, where did that start? Where did the passion for cooking start for me? You? Yes. So I was probably... 10 years old and on my mother's side we came from a long line of farmers german and we grew up in cincinnati ohio close to the city but our relatives were in, in indiana southern indiana where they had farms so we went out to this farm and they had a family style feast and in this spread of all these things that were delicious there were sliced tomatoes they were the reddest ripest most delicious looking tomatoes i'd ever seen and I took a bite of one of those tomatoes and then I remember feeling the connection um, and thinking that, that was the best thing that I ever tasted at that point. And as a 10-year-old, kind of interesting because that's not something that most 10-year-olds probably find appetizing. But ever since then, I remember having a connection with the food. I used to stand around when my mother would make dinner and you know, ask her questions and pick little things off of the table. And I would actually slice off olives and feed them to my cat and I would see what, <laughs> what he would eat. So I, I was always interested in the kitchen and it took some, some years to, to figure out that that's what I wanted to do. But that was when I remember having a connection with food. Right. Well, most 10-year-olds like their tomatoes out of a bottle, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the form of ketchup. And right. Yeah, sugar. Covering everything. Sugary ketchup. But, right, uh, right. Oh, but those are good tomatoes. That's great soil yeah. there. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it's always amazing how food can bring us back to a certain feeling and, yeah. and memory. Yeah. And how if you don't get that right taste, you yeah. don't quite reach the memory. Absolutely. And that's... Even to this day, I kind of wish I was born into like a big Italian family because you see the, ro the romantic notion of them sitting around the table in the Sunday dinner or even Southern family, you know, where, where they stop everything and no phones, no TV, no nothing. And they just sit there and communicate and they're brought together over, over a, a meal, which, which brings a connection to, to people. And um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And that's, that's something that, you know, draws me towards food and, and towards people. Mm -hmm. That is so true. I don't know if everybody knows that you have one of the best trainings there is in the world. Can you tell us something about your education? Yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you a little bit about my, what led me to that in the first place. I just went to you know a regular high school. I went to a, a college. I studied finance. So out of college, I, I didn't ever think about food as a career because I didn't know anyone in a restaurant. It wasn't publicized. You know, when I was in my 20s, that would have been in the you know, early 90s. So the TV food network wasn't around yet. So right. I just never, I just never thought about it. I didn't know anybody in the business. So I went into finance and I started working for a regional brokerage firm. Um, and then I moved up to uh, Wall Street firms and I was moving along fairly well. And then in 2000, 2001, the tech bubble came, burst. Um, 
9-11 happened, uh, sadly, um, which sent the whole country into sort of a tailspin in the financial markets as well. So I basically had all the money that I made, which was quite a bit for, you know, being a 20 year old was eviscerated almost overnight. And I remember thinking there's got to be something that I want to do or something that I have a passion for. I just didn't think about it, but I always made dinner for myself, dinner for friends. I was always interested in cooking. I just didn't, didn't put the connection between money and cooking or making a living at it. So then came along Food Network shortly thereafter. So I started watching it. And then I said, this is it. I sold my condo, sold my car, dropped the country club membership, one-way ticket to New York City. And I went to the French Culinary Institute in, in Manhattan. And I graduated from there. And I worked in Manhattan for um, eight years, three different restaurants, two of which had a Michelin star in 2005. I worked my way up to a sous chef position in, in a Park Avenue Michelin star restaurant called Lever House. And I was trained under two chefs who were very notable in, in the chef circle of New York. So I learned the proper technique and how to run a kitchen. Talk to us. How cutthroat is it to get into the culinary art? It, it's not hard to get into it, but it's hard to sustain because it's very demanding on young people because you are basically, at least in big cities, it's a little different in Punta Gorda, you're given a lot of responsibility and you're not paid a lot of money so if you have to make it through each it's almost like a gauntlet you make it through the beginning which is easy because they just want hands to help prep and then as you gain more responsibility and you finally go to what they call sous chef which means under the chef sous is french for under they basically have you for very little money 24 7. so mm -hmm. and that's the most grueling part when i was a sous chef in new york i was making 30 something thousand dollars and i was working 70 plus hours a week oh. so that's hard to pay and, the bills in yeah, New York. And in New York, yeah, right, so, exactly. Yeah. So that's the trial period. But if you make it through that period, that's when you, you know, can run your own kitchen. And I chose not to stay in New York. Fate sort of brought me to, to Florida. But if I had stayed, I would have been on track to be a chef and got investors to, to start a restaurant. But when I came to Florida on a vacation there after I was in New York for seven years, I just said, people need to eat down here too. So I... <laughs> well, and we're glad to eat as well yes. as we do now that you're here. We, we do like to eat. We're eating well now. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about your introduction to Hanna Gorda and how you are able to show people your art in mm -hmm. this town. Because it is, it is different. It's definitely different. When I moved... I, moved from New York, I moved to Estero. So I was familiar with the area. My parents had a condo down there and I had been on, you know, down for golf trips, vacation, et cetera. I came by myself just to take a long vacation after a, a long year in the kitchen up in, in Manhattan. And that's when I decided to stay. So at first I would, took a consulting job in Estero with a, some uh, couple that owned a little restaurant. They were from New York, so we hit it off pretty quickly. But I was just kind of half in, half out. I was just sort of enjoying the sunshine. I was, I made their menu. I did the wine list. I would do some wine dinners. I, I wasn't active in the kitchen um, every day. And, and um, I was just kind of enjoying a little peace and quiet. So I was only working 30, 40 hours a week, which is not a lot for a, a chef. And then a friend that I had met down here took a manager job at Tribute, which was the restaurant that I used to work at. And so he called me. They were looking for a chef. I had never been to Punta Gorda. I came up, I drove around the city, thought it was unbelievably charming. I loved the fact that there were no chain restaurants 
uh, in the city, so I immediately you know gravitated towards that, and I just thought it would it would be a good place to kind of make a mark in the community because you could tell that the the it, it was a little it just felt different the whole thing and and I've learned that it's much different. There's a there's a sense of community here that doesn't exist in, in a lot of the other cities around Southwest Florida. So that's what drew me to it, and I took that job. Eventually, ended up running the whole restaurant, and we immediately developed relationship with some of the local artists who then adorned our walls with their art. So, and mm-hmm. we sold several pieces um, and it just turned into a fun, eclectic little restaurant that we kind of did. The owner was generous. She let me do whatever I wanted. So the menu changed. We decorated it kind of funky. Um, got to know the people from Arcadia Orange Grove guys to the local artists, to the finance guys, to the accountants, to the retirees. And eventually it kind of became the place where if you just wanted something, me to make you something, I would just go ahead and make it. It wasn't, there were no rules. I mean, that's what I loved about it. And it, and it was like having my own space, except I didn't own it. But I treated it like I owned it. And I tried to, you know, just make, basically try to make people happy when they came through the door, give them what they want. And um, that's how we kind of, I grew a, a little base, I would say, or a little following. And then that translated into one when, when Jack's came available. Uh, my partner and I, Chris Evans, bought that. It was a natural step forward, and now we've expanded. So it's worked out very well. Yeah, I think that one of the things I always find interesting whenever I'm in your dining room is that when you do the the walk around the room to check in with the diners, it doesn't right. feel like it's this forced check-in from the chef. You really enjoy talking to people about what they want to eat, how, right. how they think it tastes, the feedback, the camaraderie, yeah. And, yeah. and that's really different than you know, kind of like someone's being sent out to the principal's room to the diner. <laughs> right. <laughs> to see whether it's good or bad. No, I, yeah. no, I would love, you know, and it, that's the best part about the job is after you get to know people. And now that, you know, I might not know everyone's name, but I certainly know most people's face that the connection between the kitchen and the people is there. And a lot of people will just pop back in the kitchen, say hello, say hello to the staff. It's a very different atmosphere. And it's obviously we want to make money, but the principles that guide what I do and what the restaurant does lend itself to that because it lends itself to people feeling comfortable, whether they want to have just a simple glass of wine and a little appetizer or a quick lunch or a fine dining type of experience. We try to give them what they want and we want them to feel as comfortable as they would at home. That's kind of what we shoot for. I have proof of how much uh, Keith likes to do stuff for people that when he knows they like it. We once went in to have dinner with three other couples, and it was my husband's birthday, and there was a prefix menu, so all the items are selected ahead of time, and you buy the whole thing at once. But the waitress told us that Keith was going to substitute the appetizer for my husband because he knew it was his birthday and we were in there. And everyone at the table was so curious and so jealous that they all said, well, we want that too. <laughs> and my husband and I looked at them at all and we said, no, you don't. But it's, <laughs> it's not your birthday. Yes. And it was the, the beef heart tartar. Right. Ah. Yeah, they, they thought they wanted it, but they, but till they found out what yeah. it was. Uh-huh. So some people have a hard time enough eating tartar and on top of it that it was beef heart which we absolutely adore and Keith makes it uh, to perfection but um, so yeah they that was wonderful to have that special treatment and hilarious to watch everyone else right. yeah. <laughs> that's I can't right believe you, yeah yeah and if, if anybody does know what tartare is it's raw so it's the, the the raw presentation chopped up and mixed with capers and some Dijon but uh, 
yeah, that was that was that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and you keep coming back to the the community and you know that welcoming thing, and and that's just wonderful. That the transformation that you have made at FM Don's is really impressive. It feels comfortable when you walk in. Dave and I were in there the other night talking with you, and you were talking about the the newest transformation that you're making in the restaurant. That's that's an art in itself. Right. You've created. A, an area, a place where people can come and they, you know, have a place to sit and they're right. comfortable. So how did you come about doing that? Did you work with anyone? Was that no, come not out really, of your head? Just kind of naturally. We take direction from people as well, which is one of the reasons why we remodeled the back room. We had some people that just were regulars at the old restaurant who kind of wanted a smaller space that wanted quieter. So we remodeled the back room and set that up for certain groups of people. The main bar area it's more communal so we got a couple of longer tables in the middle because a lot of people will just come in by themselves men women doesn't matter and they know people that are there on a daily basis you know bringing people in a conversation and you know nothing makes me happier when people meet at the restaurant whether it's for the first time or through another group of people and they come back together or tell that bring their friends next time you know try to make people feel as comfortable as possible and I tell the servers this all the time, which we'll do whatever anyone wants as long as we have it. The only way we can't do it is if somebody asks for an ingredient we don't have, but otherwise the answer is yes. So I think that people, you know, feel special that way, and that's what we want to do. I mean, that's what that's what we're there for, and and I guess that could be a little bit of an art, but for me, it's just a it's just a natural way of being hospitable to people. Yeah, awesome. Wow, I'll have to keep that in mind. So you know, <laughs> come up with something uh, yeah, off the absolutely. cuff and see yeah. if you. Can... Summertime gets easier than season. Sure. Sometimes season gets a little hectic in the kitchen, but even still, we do it. You know, we do it. I've made many a trips. I've had people say, "Oh, you know, craving nachos on a late night." I've got in the car, ran to Publix, got some nachos, <laughs> came back, grilled some chicken, chopped it up. Yeah, I've done that plenty of times. So you know. Wow. That's what 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 makes me the happiest. It's obviously it, it's good when the restaurant's profitable, but when you see people happy and they appreciate the fact that you go out of your way to do special things for them, that's that's the reward of the restaurant business. It makes a huge difference. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a restaurant and they run out of something, and there's a store across the parking right. lot, but you know it right. doesn't occur to them to just go, go get, get it. Right. I mean, yeah, of. you can run to the store in five minutes in this town and, and be back in no time. So. I've done that once, actually. We went somewhere, and they were out of chips, actually, and we went to the store and bought, bought them. them. The entire <laughs> restaurant applauded when we came back. <laughs> <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> so talk to us some more about the cooking. Is there something that you love making that you don't make at the restaurant? Um, Do you have a favorite dish? I don't really have a favorite dish. All Like I mentioned prior, I was trained French, classic French, by literally some of the best chefs in the world at the French Culinary Institute. They made the, the curriculum and they did hands-on demos. So the technique that we do is all French-based. Now the menu is broader than just French food. And French food itself has evolved. It's not just heavy sauces now. Now it's kind of a little more light and a little more approachable than some of the some of the old French mother sauces and, and what have you. But we do a little regional southern stuff, kind of whatever kind of whimsical i mean we want to be approachable but we we try to keep everything super fresh but we got a comfort zone a little bit the beef heart tartare was one thing we do octopus is special from time to time which some people enjoy some people don't uh, but we'll usually run things that are a little bit on the edges as specials 
We do a bocarones dish, which is a marinated white anchovies, not the salty ones that are dark color that you make Caesar salad dressing out of. It's like a Spanish tapas. So we do some Spanish dishes, some French dishes, new American dishes, and a regional southern. But the menu can change at any time. So. What do you make for yourself at home? Oh, not much <laughs> anymore. <laughs> anymore. So I, the cobblers, kids have no shoes. I, I did. <laughs> yeah, I, right. Yeah. I did the other night, and I took a picture. My wife handles all the Facebook and Instagram, so I haven't given it to her yet. So anytime you see something on Facebook, she generally does it. But she has my, you know, she knows what I would say and what have you. But I had a steak that was in the in the walk-in, and it started out. It was a prime. New York Strip, and and it had a little age on it, which is not a bad thing. It was probably 60 days old, which if you were going to go to a steakhouse restaurant and someone's going to sell that steak to you, they would probably charge you about $100 flavor concentrates. But it was it was it almost has like a blue cheesy uh, scent to it, and it's very concentrated. It had a lot of age on it. In other circles, that's a delicacy. Um, so I took it home and I made it for myself and opened up a nice bottle of wine and <laughs> cut it up and took a picture of it. Was it rare? It was medium rare. I overcooked it a little bit. I know you'd be like, I would take it. <laughs> <laughs> Just warm it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was uh, searing in the pan. I was trying to be quiet because my wife was sleeping. So I was like not doing the high heat. So I was kind of doing medium heat. So it cooked a little longer because I was trying to get that crust on the outside. So it was probably got to medium rare, which oh. I, yeah, which uh, if somebody sees the picture, they'll be like, you overcooked it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it happens even to the best of us. Tasted awesome though. It was I'm very sure. good. I, so, but to answer your question at home, yeah, we simple, generally simple. I mean, we taste all day in the kitchen right. that you know i encourage people the best way to kind of take your you know cooking to a solid craft and even eventually to an art is you have to know what you're sending out and you know what you're preparing so you know that that's invaluable so we taste all the food all day long and i taste all the food all day long so I don't generally get hungry till late at night when I get mm. home and take a shower and calm down. So sometimes <laughs> it might just be a bowl of cereal. Right. Yeah. Sure. You eat rich, you know, rich or food, you know, some, you know. We'll make sure to link on the website to the recipe for the bowl of cereal by Chef <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about, um, since you have all this formal training, and sometimes I love going to places when the plate comes out and it's all decorated mm -hmm. and there's a little swirl and a sprig and, sure, sure. and whatnot. Now, I want to know, is that a class? Do you just practice? Does it drive you batty? Should we yeah. do away with that and just eat our food? Right. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of in between. I, I definitely am not a tweezer plater. You definitely use microgreens at the restaurant as a garnish, but it's an edible garnish. I don't ever put anything on the plate that can't be eaten, like we'll do micro radish or sunflowers. It'll add a contrast, not only color, but you know the radish has a, a bitter flavor. So if it's a rich dish, it might clean the palate a little bit. You know, we're the kind of restaurant to where everything looks nice on the plate. You know, we'll put swirls from time to time or in a drizzle of this and that, but for the most part, we want people to feel like they're not in a stuffy environment. It's comfortable food. Yeah, it's comfortable. <laughs> you know, everything, you know, I definitely think about how to plate, but I also think about how we can plate efficiently because, you know, sometimes we have a 20 top or a 15 top. And if you sit there and, you know, make every plate look like a total work of art, by the time it gets out to the diner, it's going to be cold, right. you know. <laughs> So yeah. there's a fine line there. but it's a lot we, of moving parts. There's a lot of moving parts. and we, But we definitely always think about color 
and contrast of texture when I come up with the concept of a dish and then work from there back you know to the composition of it but the most important thing is how it tastes I mean at the end of the day yeah. And color is not only beautiful, but it's good for you, too. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> my mother always taught me to eat by color. Color, yeah. Mm-hmm. Colors, if they, things have bright, vibrant colors, then you know they, the vegetables. And that's a process. That the te- that's where the technique comes in. When you cook things a certain way, there's a reason. You know, there's a science behind why you know, asparagus or French beans turn bright green when they're dropped in salted water. And when you do the techniques the right way, it might not change the taste a ton, but it certainly does change the color. When you set the color, when they hit them in cold water, then the bright green comes, the chlorophyll comes to the surface. So there's all that plays into the, the dishes. I'm starting to get hungry. What about you, Stacey? <laughs> <I just laughs> it's like the, the intersection of science and That's art right. and yeah. emotion. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. exactly. Science is definitely playing a much bigger part. And it's been happening for a while, but it, it was just when people would try to transform, you know, something into a foam or take a liquid and make it into a solid. But now the science that I invoke in cooking is more about the best way to cook it, not changing the texture or dynamically changing the way it's done, just cooking it the right way. An example is one of the best ways to cook beef is to bring it up slowly. So what we do is if we're going to do a whole, roast a whole tenderloin or we're going to roast a whole ribeye, we'll put it in the oven at a low temperature and we try to bring it up as slowly as possible to rare. And then to, at service, we'll slice it and finish it on the grill or in the pan. And two things, number one, it's more efficient for uh, the service because you have it part, part of the way cooked. But the, the science says that the slower you bring it up to 122 degrees, the more tender it will become. Enzymes are activated, which break down the meat. And you, it, it, there's a science behind you know, doing it that way as well. Makes perfect sense when you explain it. I had never thought about yeah. that before, but that does yeah. make well, this, perfect the, sense. Well, the big thing, not necessarily a buzzword, but sous vide is things that people talk about now, which means cooking under vacuum you cook in a water bath. So you would put a piece of fish or vegetables or or meat into a vacuum sealed pack and you can set the immersion circulator which will keep the water at at a constant temperature. So if you set program it for 122 degrees, you drop the piece of beef into there, you could leave it in there theoretically for two days. It'll never go higher than 122. So that's the ideal way to do it, but it's the process is harder for bigger cuts of meat, so we use the oven sometimes. But we do sous vide as well, uh, and then when it's ready to serve, you take it out and you sear it up, and you get the crust on the outside, and and there you go. Yeah, so, sous vide is definitely the hot uh, yeah. cooking buzzword. It's It'll been be, around for a long time. It's been but, around for a, yeah, a sous vide yeah. <laughs> yeah. thermometer. Must like, have this. Yeah. Last year was the instant pot. This year it's the sous vide. Sous vide, yeah, yeah, and it's a great way to cook. Yes, it is. Okay, well, we're out of time for part one of our interview with Chef Keith. So make sure to join us again for part two as we continue to explore the taste of the arts with Chef Keith of FM Don's Restaurant in Punta Gorda, Florida. Okay, well, thanks great. for having me, ladies. I Thank really you, appreciate Chef. it. Thank you. And Stacy, we'll talk again soon. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for this episode of Taste of the Arts. Thank you for joining us on The Taste of the Arts. This show was recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. 